The year of the what? We'll talk about that and more on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. Is everybody ready for the Mind Dog to make it the show? Start the clock! And welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. I'm Matt Napo. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here, as always. Beautiful summer day here in New York. I hope it's a beautiful day wherever you are. What are we going to talk about today? Well, we might be talking about sluts. Whoa, what did he say? Uh, <laughs> you know, we've lost a lot of words that we can and can't say uh, over the last few years. And um, the word slut has a very negative con- connotation towards it. I don't buy it. Most of my the, my best friends, both male and female, I would call sluts, and and proudly so. <laughs> but I know a lot of people look at the word a, a, in a very negative way. Uh, you know how, how promiscuous you are um, is up to you. But I think the people I've become most attracted to in not in uh, a romantic kind of way, but sometimes in a romantic kind of way, but in life in general, the people whose uh, minds stimulate me the most, the people whose personalities attract me the most, have been people who have been fairly promiscuous and uh, have worn that that word kind of um, a badge of honor in some way. <laughs> I know it's a, it's got such a negative connotation, so I just hope it's one of the words we don't use because every day it seems like we're losing another word that we're allowed to say. I like saying slut. <laughs> anyway, uh, my guest has written a, a book uh, called "The Year of the What Year of What," uh, based on a, a play that she had uh, been a, uh, a star of and produced called "Year of the Slut." Uh, so. Um, We'll be talking about that in just a moment, <laughs> and uh, it should be a very interesting conversation. I hope you'll stick with us. Before I bring her in, I need to quickly talk about our sponsors. Today's show is brought to you by FunWise Capital. Uh, FunWise Capital, you know about them. They're a business lender matching platform that gets you the best credit lines guaranteed. Looks like I have a green screen thing going on. Hold on one second here. Let me turn this off. Green screen. None. That's better. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, shows brought to you by Funwise Capital, business lender matching platform that gets you the best credit lines guaranteed. You can apply online in 60 seconds or less, and there's no effect to your credit to see how much you can get. Use the funding for anything you need to start or grow your business. Yes, that's right. Anything to start or grow your business. Uh, if you don't have a business, but you got a solid business plan, good marketing plan, sit down with an accountant, got all your ducks in a row, they can help you get funding, get the best funding you can qualify for. Their strategic lender matching platform searches through hundreds of lenders to find the very best possible option for your unique situation. They have hundreds of five-star reviews on Google, Trustpilot, and Facebook, and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. They provide unsecured lines of credit at 0% interest for 9 to 15 months, unsecured term loans, loans based on income, short-term gap funding, and bridge loans. They work with real estate 
create startups, like I mentioned, franchises, uh, restaurants, any kind of business, any kind of product. To get started, it's really simple. You go to apply.fundwise.com slash minddog. Apply.fundwise.com slash minddog. The link is in the description. I do appreciate you patronizing our sponsors. It's what keeps us on the air. Uh, now on to today's big program. As I mentioned, uh, my guest today is uh, she's a performing arts uh, person. She's uh, She's written a uh, written and performed a solo show, which her, her latest book is based on. Jennifer, Jennifer Lieberman is from uh, Maple, Ontario, Canada, and holds a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy from York University in Toronto. Jennifer has appeared in over 30 stage productions in Toronto, New York, Los Angeles, Europe, and Australia, including her award-winning solo show, Year of the Slut which uh, the book Year of the What was adapted from. Uh, it's Jennifer's uh, first novel. Her other books by uh, by her include Make Your Own Break, How to Master Your Virtual Meeting in Seven Simple Steps, and Make Your Own Break, How, uh, how to Record and publish your audiobook in seven, uh, seven simple steps. Excuse me for stumbling on the intro. Ladies and gentlemen, please open your ears and open your minds and help me welcome in Jennifer Lieberman to the Mind Dog TV podcast. Jennifer, welcome. Hi, Matt. Hi, Hi. everyone. <laughs> it's a pleasure to meet you. Now, uh, I, I think you heard the intro. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> what- I love how you broached the subject, it's wonderful. Well, it, what's confusing to me now, and maybe where I'm jumping the gun here, um, you, you decided not to use the word uh, for the book, but you used the word for the show. Uh, is there a reason for that? Yes. So I initially did launch the book with the original title, and it was censored from getting any ads approved on social media in Amazon. And a colleague of mine suggested I relaunch it with a new title and I was very reluctant. It wasn't something I wanted to do for several reasons. First of all, the show did really well with that title and I attribute the show's success to the fact that the title was so provocative, it got people out of their homes. You know, uh, it's not something you can't stream a theater piece. Well, during COVID we have been, but You know, generally, live theater is meant to be seen live. It's not normally something that you can stay home and watch. So it was successful getting people out, um, number one. And number two, I had the title first. And I wrote the story around the title because the title just kind of grabbed everybody when I was throwing out ideas of doing a one woman show and trying to come up with a theme and a title and you know, what the show would be about. So, yeah. The word has a negative connotation and I think we mostly apply it to women, which I think is unfair because I've always considered myself uh, a slut. Um, (laughs) um, But I know a lot of people use it in a very negative way towards women or, you know, women are not allowed to be promiscuous. And if a woman is, and for some reason we are uh, hurt by that woman, all of a sudden we're, we're likely to use that word as an insult. But yes. to me, to me, um, as I mentioned, the, the most interesting people I've ever met have, have lived a full life and living a full life in, uh, includes, um, knowing yourself sexually and, and getting out there and learning what the world is about, learning what your own body is about, learning what your sexuality is about. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's a, a bad thing. Why do you, what, is it because of that 
you know, it's it's also often used as a guy uh, trying to hurt a woman who who no longer likes. Well, I definitely, I definitely think it's a weapon that's used against women, and women use it against other women just as much as men do. I don't think it's yeah, you're right, exclusively reserved for a man to use that word. Women call each other um, sluts all the time when we're trying to exactly when we're trying to attack somebody. So basically what I'm doing with this title, so the book is a coming of age story about a girl who's heartbroken, comes out of her first relationship. She thought that this guy was going to be the one. She's in her early 20s in New York City, and she's not self-assured, and she's uncomfortable with the idea of being promiscuous However, it's about six months after the breakup and she realizes she has some needs that need to be fulfilled, you know, um, that might be more pressing than finding Mr. Right. Hmm. And she goes on this journey of sexual discovery and getting comfortable with herself because the whole idea is until we're each individually comfortable in our own skin, we're not going to attract the right partner or the right relationship. So, um, you know, it's kind of a journey of the protagonist falling in love with herself. Right. Uh, why? And I don't expect you to have the answer, but I'm looking for your opinion more than a mm-hmm. concrete answer. Why do you think uh, society is still uh, very puritanical in that we want we want women who uh, are a combination of, uh, you know, mother, the, the virgin mother and also Madonna whore um, <laughs> yeah. thing. Uh, why, why are we still hung up on that, you know, in the, in the 21st century? Well, I still, it, I still think it comes down to the fact that women are the ones who get pregnant and we're the ones who have a greater responsibility if things don't go as planned, so to speak. So, you know, as much as a man needs to take responsibility for a situation like that, he doesn't have the same, even just physical ties. You know, he doesn't have to go through a nine month pregnancy. He doesn't have to go through breastfeeding. There aren't certain amount of responsibilities that only the woman can fulfill. You know, and yes, we've had, you know, Roe versus Wade for, you know, what, almost 50 years now, well over 40 or over 40 years for sure. You know, birth control has been completely normalized in terms of, you know, whether it's a birth control pill or other types of contraception, partially due to STDs. But, you know... So society has evolved in so many ways in terms of young women have access to all of these tools, what have you, (laughs) let's call them those, you know, in order to not um, suffer the repercussions that women did 50, 60, 70 years ago and beyond. Um, But I don't think the psychology of society has caught up the same way the science has. Yeah. Uh, oh, so um, they say, write what you know, right? 
So at some level, uh, you, you know these people, uh, the, the, the two main characters of the book, do you know them? And are, is one of them a little bit of you? <laughs> I so, know that. So definitely. One of the characters was definitely based on me. And it was more so based on me in the show. So in the show, I had a different goal because the goal was to showcase my acting ability. I played 10 different characters. So I kind of tailored the characters, their accents, what they can do based on my own acting range. It's like, oh, yeah, I can do French accent. No problem. We'll make this one French. You know, oh, I can do, you know, a New York Brooklyn accent. Okay, this guy's from Brooklyn. <laughs> you know, so it was all kind of peppered. Of course, I had a streamlined story that had an arc that made sense, but I wanted to find ways to, you know, spice it up, you know, in order to, um, in order to showcase the acting. And then the um, best friend character is based on my roommate who was my best friend when I lived in New York. She literally did drop out of a full ride to college. She had a very high IQ in order to become a dominatrix. And she was working in a dungeon in Chelsea. And I was like, I did not sign up for this. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was already like, you know, the sheltered Jewish girl from a small town Canada in the big city. And, you know, just the things that happen. Well, I, I'm <laughs> like, yeah, my roommate just decided to become a dominatrix. <laughs> By the way. <laughs> Uh, wow. Um, so, yeah, yeah, no, I, guys, I was living uh, on Bleecker Street with both ended up having AIDS. Okay, it just happens. Well, uh, I'm, ex I, I'm extremely <laughs> interested in following up on the whole dominatrix stuff and, and, and what that really means in terms of uh, society and who we are because, it, you know, there's no product that doesn't have a demand. And so we tend to judge uh, people who are in a profession like that, but she wouldn't be in that profession if there wasn't a lot of demand for it. And so I, I want to talk about that, but I'd like to go back because you're talking about uh, being 12 different characters in your own show. Were some oh, of them male? Pardon? Some of the characters male? Yeah, they were male and female okay. and different and yet, ages. You, t you mentioned the Brooklyn accent, and mm -hmm. I, I, I can't let that go because okay. I, I think I have one. But I can't hear my own. And this is something I talk about frequently because I have people from all over the world, and I'm very curious about accents because I can hear anybody else's accent and get very curious about, oh, where you're from, and try to figure it out even before I ask them where they're from. My accent, I'm very aware I have a Brooklyn accent, but could you do a, a Brooklyn accent for me and, and tell me and give me an example of what Brooklyn sounds? Well, Mike's only from Brooklyn is a little more stereotypical than you okay. are. Okay, I can hear it. Now. You know, it's a little thicker because it's for dramatics. You know right. what I'm saying? Yeah. You don't have a uh, pronounced what I would consider Canadian accent, though. No, uh, you know what? I lived in the States for a long time and I work on projects in the U.S. So when I'm in Canada at home with family, I do fall back into enunciating words in the Canadian way, in the Canadian way. 
I get it. eh? (laughs) Yeah, but I do. I love to do accents and I love to like slip in and out of different voices. It's a lot of fun for me. Very cool. Now, playing the parts of the the males in the show, is that... um, is that a challenge or or do you feel like uh, it, it's an easy it's a piece of cake for you? So, you know what? It's it's a lot of fun for me because so I have a background in mime. When I lived in New York, I was part of the American Mime Theater. We had a rehearsal space on 4th Street in the village just north of like the Astor Place subway station. And we physicalized different characters. We worked on different characters every week where we obviously weren't speaking because it was a mime company, but we had to have very distinct movements, physicalities, like where we kind of held tension in our face. Like if we had a pucker or if we had a scowl or, you know, so I really led into, this is getting so method acting, but I really led into all of my characters physically first. And once, you know, I would kind of get into them physically and start moving around and walking around as the character and somehow like a voice would kind of come from there. And, you know, and it would usually come from writing a few lines of their dialogue. They'd really come to life for me. And uh, yeah, so I, I look like a crazy person in my living room. That's how <laughs> I'm on to something. When, when, when it looks like I should be committed, you know I'm going to win an Oscar. But, wait. <laughs> uh, did you learn anything about uh, men from, play, from uh, becoming one? <laughs> well, I think what was, what's important as a writer, this is something that I learned earlier on in, in script writing, is just showing everybody's side of the story through the character's truth, not necessarily showing everything through the protagonist's truth. That's what makes each character more interesting. You know, when they're coming at the story with their own goals and their own point of view, as opposed to being told through the point of view of the character who has an opinion about them. Hmm. Uh, interesting stuff. I think it would be very, very difficult for me to get into the physicality of women to be, uh, get into the mindset of a woman. I don't, I, and I'm not a trained, uh, actor in any way, but I, I just, uh, I can't imagine myself finding, uh, that within myself. And so, I'm, yeah. And like for a man, for you to say something like that, if I were to coach you if for some reason, you know, you're starring in Tootsie and we've got three weeks to get you ready. <laughs> I'd be scared. You know, I, honestly, one of the first things I would advise you is to put on some sort of dress and <laughs> to put on a pair of high heels. That would scare me. No, no. I know it would be scary, but that would be the first thing because as soon as you have a dress on, it's going to make you sit a different way. You're not going to be able to, you know, lean over the way you lean over your legs can't be open the way you naturally, you know, would sit with them. You know what I mean? You would have yeah. to believe me. I, it's not like I haven't had uh, like the, I, this thought uh process this thought yeah, experiment so, of what it, what I would be like as if I were a woman but I think I would be the kind of woman who would sit there with her legs open and like break all the uh the you know social 
protocols. But then, but that wouldn't, wouldn't that be interesting then? Because there are women like that. So it's like, okay, what kind of women would be your flavor of woman? You know, because, because there's a whole <laughs> spectrum of women, you know, going through from like the most high maintenance to her hair is, you know, blown out professionally every week and everything she wears is designer to, you know, the woman who, who wears the same sweats three days a week. Yeah. You know, so that that would be the other thing is finding your flavor of, you know, which woman are you going to be? <laughs> I, I, <laughs> which woman, Matt? Come on. <laughs> we got to decide right now because I got to call wardrobe. Uh, it's a difficult thing. Give me an hour. Um, <laughs> now, I, I think a lot of guys, especially if they're not in the acting profession, uh, would have a tough time with that thought experiment and trying to really uh, figure out who they would be. Uh, and here, here's a, a part of the, you know, we are different animals. We, uh, gen, yeah, we, we, we like to think that, you know, and, and the world is, is, is pushing this idea that we're all the same and we're all the same in our human needs, but w the way we interact with the world is very different, right? And mm -hmm. so one of your characters, uh, Dana, the main character, um, is looking for Mr. Right, right? Yeah. And I think this is a thing where it's, uh, I think it's very gender um, inclusive or exclusive. And so I think more women have that idea about finding the right person and settling down. And somebody I know on Twitter just a couple of days ago said, no guy ever really wants to get married. They do it for uh, just to kind of appease the woman they're with. But if, if they had their own, um, you know, if they had it their way, they wouldn't get married. They just stay living together for, for because they always feel like at some point it is going to break up. Do you agree with that on any level or not? Oh, that's so romantic. Um, no, I don't think so. I think, I think it takes all types. You know, like I've seen all different types of relationships where, you know, the guy's so in love, he can't wait to get married. You really? know, oh, yeah, I've definitely seen that with a few of I actually one of the couples that I introduced that got married, like my friend has said to me because I dragged him to a party that he didn't want to go to. Cause he was a little, he's a little shy. And I was like, Nope, you're coming to this party with me. I know there's somebody there. You know, I have a feeling you're going to meet somebody. Cause I knew of a friend who was going to be at that party. And I was just kind of adamant and I dragged him there and he's like, imagine, you, you know, this was 10 years ago. And he's like, imagine how different my life would be if I didn't listen to you that night. And like, you know, Cause wow. to, yeah. Cause to him, like that was, she's everything. Like, yeah, so that must've been pretty rewarding for you to know to, that you made an impact. Yeah. Of, yeah, of course. yeah. It's so nice. Like there's such good, it's actually, he's one of my oldest friends. I've been friends with him since elementary school and I've been friends with her since high school, but they uh -huh. didn't, uh, she and I didn't go to the same elementary school and he and I didn't go to the same high school. So there wasn't an overlap. So they never knew each other. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it's, it's really nice. And um, I, I know several couples, several of my friends, you know, feel like they really met their person, their best friend and their, 
they're so happy. It, sure, you know, I have I have other friends, you know, where it didn't even last two years, um, which is a whole other story. But <laughs> well, uh, we this is another thing that I've talked about several times with different people from different uh, places in life, uh, you know, uh, about the subject of monogamy. And, um, I have damaged from 15 years old, uh, with my uh, take on, on monogamy because, and, and I'll relay the story as briefly as I can. My, my friends, one of my best friends, father got caught cheating on his mother and, uh, they were in the living room, not knowing that we were in a side room and they were arguing and the father stepped out into the hall and saw us standing there and looked at his 15 year old son, my, one of my best friends and said, man is not meant to be monogamous. And I thought at the time, even a 15 year old, I oh, thought yeah. I had the, the, the wherewithal to say, what a terrible thing idea for a father to place into a son because you know and now every relationship he, he gets into he's going to have that idea in the back of his head and i know i have for 45 years since that moment or more than 45 years since that moment uh that is always in the back of my mind man is not meant for monogamy and uh and so i i wonder because divorce rates are are, are sky high what is your take on it? Do you think human beings and monogamy as a cultural, um, not necessary standard, but a cultural thing, something that we aspire to uh, get into, uh, do you think it's going to be with us for a long time? Do you think it's, it's part of the human makeup? And as a philosophy student, do you think it's part of uh, our future? Okay, that's a very good question about monogamy, whether I think we're meant to be monogamous. Um, I don't know per se if we're meant to be monogamous in terms of like a divine, you know, a divine belief or a religious belief. Um, I do believe that if you agree to be on a team with somebody and you decide to make decisions as a team, it's easier to make a go of things and be successful in life as a team. I definitely believe that, number one. Number two, if you wanna have a family and raise a family together, that's like another layer of, we are a team and we're building something together. And it's not about my individual needs or desires per se, or your individual needs or desires per se. It's about the greater good and making decisions for the whole, as opposed to for the individual. Right. And I don't know, like both sides of my family are immigrants. And I don't know if maybe that's more of like an immigrant mentality. I don't think Because so. you don't have as much of like an extended family for help. But basically, if you think of it in terms of, I think, th I think when we put this pressure of, you know, it's going to be love and romance and, you know, all of these flowery fairy tale things that's completely unrealistic that's not what life is it's nice to have some of that sprinkled in in between diaper changes and working till two in the morning on a project and you know all of the normal things that we have to take responsibility for in life but i think understanding the team like i my grandparents were a team my parents are a team 
you know, and I think that mentality of understanding that we're working towards something bigger than just the two of us gives it a little more weight and gives it gives people a little more incentive to stay to stick with it. Right. Well, I think I think you're right. I think you hit on on that very well. And I think um, here's the thing. I think nature fools us. Uh, and and this is where it kind of leads into the kind of subject matter in your book. It's because uh, when we're out there looking for Mr. Right, whatever, uh, Miss Right, whatever it is, uh, and we are sexually active, Eros <laughs> fools us. It tricks us. It, it gives us the idea that this is this is what it's going to be like with this person when it's it's you're you're on like a drug high when you first yeah. meet somebody and you have that really strong sexual attraction and then you start actually acting out on that sexual attraction you start mm-hmm. to you start to believe that that's what it always is and lose sight of the reality that raising a team raising a family being part of something that is a unit uh it's not always going to be that that's just but it tricks us and i think uh it's a cruel trick that nature plays on us because it does trick our uh mentality into thinking wow this is this is perfect i hope this, I hope this never changes. I love this feeling. And so I think yeah. what happens is a lot of people get fall in love with the idea of being in love. That or and they and once any relationship start to lose a little bit of that shine, they start to look for that again because I'm it's like a drug addict. I'm I'm looking yeah. for that first high that I can never never re, rematch again in my life. Do you agree yeah, with that? I, I I definitely agree with that, but I also think we can fall in and out of love with the same person. And just, and I think it's very possible to ha- have a rough go, have a rough year, be dealing with, you know, whether it's a work crisis, a medical crisis, a family crisis. You know, I think you can fall out of love with somebody and then there's the potential to fall back in love with that same person. But most people, instead of trying to fall back in love with the person they're with, they do try to find somebody else like another drug, as if replacing the person that they're already with is the answer, when maybe putting a little work into that relationship is the answer. And that's going to be a lot less stressful, (laughs) let's use the word stressful, of, you know, ending a marriage splitting up a family, you know, whatever, whatever that steps, those steps are to separate from that person. But, um, you know, but once again, I think people are getting married for the wrong reasons and they're not discussing, you know, it's like they spend more man hours choosing a menu and going on tastings and fittings for a wedding than they do actually mapping out a future having a five-year plan, having a 10-year plan, having a 20-year plan. Like, what do we want to do? Where do we want to, how do we want to grow? How much money do we want to save? What type of vacations do we want to take? Are the kids going to public or private school? Like, you know what I mean? These are all really important life decisions. You know, oh, I want to go on, you know, one trip abroad every year and take the kids. That's definitely, you know, one thing when are you crazy? What do we need to go abroad for? Like, no, there's no reason to do that. You well, know? 
I'm starting to get a deeper picture of you in this because uh, realizing that you're a show person and all that, I, I had this impression that you were completely an artist, but the practical nature of what you just described uh, implies some balance. Not that most artists don't have that balance between the practical nature and the creative side. Uh, well, well, that's that's how I'm a producer, too. <laughs> because <laughs> the producer has to like balance out the artist and be like well this is what we can actually do with the amount of money we can actually raise right right that's a difficult but i don't see a lot of that in uh creative people and i think it's a difficult thing uh so where, what's the trick in in getting that balance do you, it, do you, you know it's just one of those weird things i use both sides of my brain equally uh you know, a lot of people tend to tend to use one side of their brain. Yeah, yeah, more. me. I, I'm completely on the creative side and terrible with business and practical yeah. decisions and all that stuff. And I, most of the artists I know are like me in that respect. Some of them, you know, and really um, irresponsible sometimes with the ideas of, of art comes first and, and business comes second always in any decision we make. Uh, well, but, and, and that's what we're talking about with relationship too. When you talk about. Uh, but also, I think the part of being an artist is, you know, part of it is having a chip on our shoulder. <laughs> I can, I, you know, I can say that of like not being such a nonconformist to the point that we're doing ourselves a disservice. It's like, I'm such a nonconformist. I'm not, I could be good at this job and I can make a good amount of money and do X on the weekends or Y in the evenings. But F that I'm a real artist and I'm going to suffer from my work to prove it. You know, somewhere that narrative was like ingrained in us. I don't know if it was like the 60s or 70s or, you know, like that hippie era. Um, but no, the reality is it costs a lot of money to be an artist and to refine your talent and to keep, you know, networking and opportunities. And nowadays, you know, keeping up, keeping all your social media and photos and videos up to date it's a lot. Right. It's well, lot. like that, there's, there's no shame. There's no shame in having a good job and making a good amount of money <laughs> and also being an artist. Like why, why no. do we have to choose one or the other? Why can't we do both? If you can't do both, you know, and there, there are a certain percentage of people who can't, but you don't have to stay working, um, waiting tables in your fifties, like you were doing in your twenties because your band didn't work out. No, I get it. But uh, just bring us back to where we started, because I know you were pressured to take the word slut out of the book because of business reasons. And I know that it had to hurt and some uh, on some level, like you, you were reluctant to do that, but you did it for business reasons. Now, me, I would have said, screw it. I'm not doing it. I want that word in there. If it means I have to sell the book out of the uh, trunk of my car, going door to door, knocking on people's doors, want to buy my book. I would rather do that than have somebody tell me. And it's not, you're right. It is a chip on my shoulder, but it's also uh, a little bit about, I, I, I have it in the back of my mind that this is what I created. How dare you tell me I need to change one word of it? Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that because for several months I did have that chip and I was like, no, this is the title. The title's great. 
you know, people and people who get it, get what the title means. Obviously, I'm challenging the word slut. Obviously, I'm making a statement about the word slut. Um, however, two things. Number one, there's the phrase, you can be right or you can be happy. <laughs> and I would be much happier with like having a number one bestseller, you know, and making a few million dollars off my book than keeping the title the same as it is. Right. So it's so weighing that out. And um, and I was reading a book on New Year's Day, a book about success, Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. I reread it every few years. And it was literally New Year's Day. I was in the middle of the book and I had come across the chapter about a guy who couldn't sell his book and change the title and became a huge success. And I was like, okay, universe, I hear ya. I hear ya. <laughs> so, uh, so that's when I decided to do it. And it actually works out for the best because it's now a series and book two is gonna be Year of the Bitch which is another word that's used as a weapon against women when people we, want to attack us for one reason or another. We're either called slut or we're called a bitch. Do you, so, do you, do you think you'll face the same uh, pressure to not use that word? Because yeah, bit, exactly. It seems so to I'm me... Just, a so I'm just going to call it like year of the what, book two. Uh, and then once people open it up, they'll understand that it's year of the bitch. I think bitch is a softer. I know people, you know, use that word back and forth, but I think it's not not as socially unacceptable as uh, as slut, or it doesn't doesn't raise the same. Um, I don't know resistance to the word. I, I, well, I also think it's because it has a literal meaning in terms of like the canine right, actual right. meaning of the word. Right. So it can't be a banned word because right. it's actually part of vocabulary, whereas slut doesn't have an alternate meaning. It only <laughs> means one thing, and it means a, a female particularly who is promiscuous. Uh, I know a lot, but maybe it's because I'm so dated or the people I hung out with, but, uh, you know, a lot of guys I knew uh, when, when I went to college with, we were all sluts and, 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 and used that word and, and learned to um, knock down the walls of, of being judgmental against women who were promiscuous mm -hmm. because we realized you know especially when you when you go away to college you're not going to college locally at home you're a oh, thousand miles away from your parents and living in dormitories and 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 co-ed dormitories and mixing it up you realize that we're all sluts on some level and so it took a lot of that this thing out of that word for me because to me uh, you know i learned to appreciate that they're just trying to figure out you know themselves just like we are so don't you know it's not i don't know maybe i'm unique in that and not just that the other thing that i like to discuss is nobody really talks about sexual health and yeah. if you got a bunch of co-eds together at that age in college and threw them all in a dorm and they weren't all trying to get off with each other there would actually be a medical concern there like and I'm not trying to be like, no, you're right. You know, I'm not trying to be facetious or whatever. Like, that would be a medical concern because teenagers of that age are supposed to have raging hormones and their bodies are supposed to be fighting against their brains trying to get off. 
That's literally what a healthy, red-blooded, functioning teenage body is doing. Right. You know, and in terms of females, we're given the talk about how to hold out and how our virginity is something special and how we want to save ourselves and la 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 la. But we're never given the talk about how all of these feelings are really healthy. And sometimes they get so strong, they're overwhelming. And we're not always going to make the right decisions. Right. And what is the right decision and what is the wrong decision? Well, only you're going to know that at that certain given point in time. Wow. Yeah. And gender roles and in, in general are, are really difficult for people to talk about. And mm-hmm. I'd, I'd like to, and if you don't want to take this conversation in the direction I'm going, I'm fine with that. You just say so. And, but uh, reading a book by Abigail Shire, do you know who she is? Um, the name sounds familiar. What, she, what she's, uh, I don't remember the title of the book, but it's about uh, this idea of transgenderism in young girls, young okay. girls, pre, uh, prepubescent girls, and then girls at the age of puberty. And it seems to be uh, skyrocketing this idea of uh, young girls who decide that they were born in the wrong body or whatever and want to be males. And more and more, and doctors are encouraging them, giving them uh, puberty blockers and all that kind of stuff. And I think a lot of it has to do with what we've been talking about, this idea of it's okay for a man to be a slut. It's not okay for a woman to be a slut into our society. And and women who are that are demonized, villainized by, for being promiscuous, and we use the word slut in, in, in an angry, demeaning way, where mm-hmm. if a man does the same thing, we're not. And I'm thinking that is, has a lot to do with the, the mindset of young girls who want to be males. Uh, do you have any insight being a, a female who went through puberty and, and, and grew up? Do you have any insight into what well, what is was, changing in the world? I was definitely a tomboy growing up. I was, you know, one of those girls who would be called a tomboy. I was an athlete. So I trained quite a bit and I was really strong. I could outrun the boys and do more chin-ups and push-ups and all of that stuff. Um you know, but I also really loved pretty dresses and party shoes and all of those things. So I would wear the dresses and the party shoes while I'd outrun the boys at school. Wow. <laughs> so, um, you know, so I think it's interesting. Like I knew that I was strong and I knew that I had a certain ability But I also felt like because I was a girl, I wasn't allowed to do certain things. You know, maybe that was just like my parents and my upbringing because I had an older brother. And, oh, he could do this at this age, but you can't because you're a girl. Right. You know, um, so I think children need to be free to express themselves in the way that they need to. In terms of like, if you don't want to wear dresses, you don't have to. If you don't want to wear pink, you don't have to. If you want to play with a truck instead of a doll, by all means, play with whatever you want. I'm not a doctor, in my opinion. Do I think changing 
you know, you know, the body chemistry of children with hormone blockers. Is that the best idea? I don't know. Because the way that I compare it, which is going to be controversial, but I'll say it anyways, if an eight-year-old child went to their parents and said, I need, I really need a nose job. I hate my nose. Right. Exactly. I agree. Even if, even if that eight-year-old could use one, and I don't mm-hmm. mean to be mean, but, you know, even if that eight-year-old had an unfortunate genetic right. situation and could really use it, no parent or doctor would ever be praised for getting that eight-year-old a nose job, you know, 15, 16, the earliest. Right. You know, I don't even think they would consider doing it at 14, and that's just a nose. Right. You know, right. so so why... And I understand, I understand all parents are doing is trying to alleviate as much pain for their child as possible. Obviously, the child has to be in a lot of pain to say that they're identifying a certain way and that they want to change in a certain way. But I'm also curious, because once again, I'm not a doctor. I'll say that 10 more times, I'm not a doctor. But I also... I'm very curious and a little confused about how a child that hasn't gone through puberty yet yet, and who hasn't actually felt what their body is going to feel like in terms of like once their hormones kick in and once they develop in certain ways and, you know, once they start having like hormonal impulses no, I, I are they going to feel? Are they going to feel the same way? I get exactly what you're saying. And by the way, just so we're clear, are you a doctor? Am I adopted? Yeah, are you yeah. a doc? A doctor? Oh, am I a doctor? Yes, I'm a I just, doctor. I just want to be clear I, on that because on TV. Uh, <laughs> well, no, because I'm, it's so I'm a little slow on the uptake. I just wanted to be sure on that. Well, it's um, hard to have this conversation because it's like, well, who cares about my opinion? Right. You know, no. I don't have a transgender child or a child who or a child. No, who and and you know what? It's not really about trans. Here's what I have to say. Yeah, it's not really about transgenderism, but I do think you have a take on the female mindset of, uh, and especially with the idea of promiscuity. Promiscuity. Thank you. Anyway, uh, I think that plays into part of this. And I, when you said, you know, uh, a parent wants to leave their child's pain, I don't think that in, in most cases, I, and uh, this is controversial, and I know people are going to send me hate mail over that. Find info at mindoltv.com. Um, I don't think in most cases it is pain. I think it's uh, peer suggestion, peer group suggestion. It becomes an idea that's placed in their heads by friends, and then it becomes a cool thing to do, like tattoos, like uh, ear piercings yeah. and, and, and massive piercings and cuttings and all that kind of stuff just becomes a thing to do. Yeah, I think it's possible because um, it's become really prevalent. It's something that's really talked about now. Like I remember in the 90s before gay marriage was legal and having a friend who came out and it was really hard. It was really hard to tell friends. It was really hard to tell family. It was really hard to tell everybody who wasn't part of that gay circle that he first you know, became friends with. 
And now, now it's like society is taking everything that used to be subversive and the exception, and they're trying to make it into an acceptable norm. Right. Yeah. And it's like, there's a big difference between treating people with dignity and people having basic human rights versus trying to make the subversive into the norm without still acknowledging that it's subversive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. And I think that's a great way to put it. And uh, I'm for everybody having equal rights, but uh, I do think, I do think really serious changes about, and I, I don't, I, sorry, I, I went that far into this no, discussion. No, that's okay. I don't, but like, I, I, I do I don't think, mind talking about it. I, I do think your book kind of touches on the female psyche about about what's what's acceptable for males and what's not acceptable for males. And I think that plays a lot into teenage girls' minds, girls who are just starting to realize, hey, there's a different set of rules for me than there are for them. And yeah. now every now it's common to get, you can actually change your sex, so maybe I'd rather be a boy. I think that that plays into it somewhat. Uh, can I ask a personal question? Are you married? No, I'm not. Are you in a relationship? Yes, I am. Has uh, your significant other read your book? Yes, he has. <laughs> and and uh, um, yeah, he was the one who encouraged me to finish it because it was a long road. <laughs> I just wonder because uh, you know um, sometimes you know I think if if my wife were uh, to be honest and put out a lot of uh, kind of and I knew some of, one of the characters was based on her. I don't know if I'd want to read it. <laughs> it would make me a little insecure. I mean, I'm being, just being honest with my own uh, fragile ego, I guess. Aw. <laughs> no, he was so encouraging. He thought it was really good, and he was the one who was like, you have to finish it. Doesn't matter if you don't sell a single copy. Just finish so, it. So he's very it. secure within within himself and within your relationship then because yeah. he'd, he'd have to be within it. Well, good for you. Uh, now, I notice, um, and I don't know how, how deep you are into this, but you have. I don't know if it's, if you're doing a podcast, but a vodcast, a video. Uh, like, yeah, sort of I like have this. a blog. Yes, it's called I Never Thought I Would. And I interview different authors every week. And they have to tell a story about doing something they never thought they would do and how it led them somewhere they never thought they would go. Wow, that's an interesting take on... on and where did that where that uh, idea come from? Because that's, that's different. Yeah, it came from staying sane during the lockdown because I needed to find something to do. And a friend <laughs> of mine suggested that I didn't have enough of an online presence and that it would help me um, like promote my book. So I started the first couple of episodes about talking about publishing my book. And I never thought I would do a one woman show. I never thought I would change my title. And by the fourth one, I was like, wow, like I have enough topics that I could do this by myself every week, but I'm so sick of talking. <laughs> so um, I figured, well, I know several authors and it could be a cool way to meet authors that I'd like to meet. 
So I started reaching out to people and yeah, I've got almost 50 episodes recorded. I've wow. got like 39 posted so far. Yeah. Wow. I'm only seeing five on the, on the website. I guess I'm in the wrong place, but I thought, wow. Uh, Cause two of the five I've interviewed and uh, I, I actually consider one of them a pretty good friend now. Uh, WL Hawkins. Uh, oh yes yeah she was awesome yeah yeah she she was very good on this show so uh just uh you know is it all all authors yep all authors um i figured you know because i work in entertainment too and i figured like there's enough people talking about trying to make movies and trying to be an actor and stuff like that but i don't really know of you know, like talk shows where authors get to talk about part of their lives that aren't necessarily the book. Like the whole thing is I want people to choose subject matter that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with their book as their, I never thought I would story. Right. Um, because it's usually doing those things that we never thought that we would do. That lead I'm, us I'm to stumped. Really fantastic places. I'm stumped now because I have that idea in my head. I never, things that I've done that I never thought I would do. I can't, nothing comes to my mind. Really? Yeah. You never went skydiving in Vegas? What? You never went skydiving in Vegas? Did. You did. <laughs> but I always thought I would. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, and I've lived a very experienced life. I mean, I've had some experiences. A lot of people say, wow. I mean, uh, but. Nothing really surprised me because I've always, you know, if I gave you my life, you're just a wild man, man. I I grew up in a very, a very dysfunctional home, number one, but a very different kind of home. My father was a a bookmaker and uh, tied to the mob and a a compulsive gambler. And at three years old, I was lost. (laughs) My parents lost me at a racetrack in Santa Anita, California. And, uh, found me three days later living with a Chinese family. Uh, so those, uh, that that was kind of my start in life. So you can imagine how... how <laughs> you laugh. <laughs> you, they you found can, you living with a Chinese Yeah, uh, well, in, 19, in 1962, there was no Amber Alert or anything like that. If a child went missing, it was up to you to find your kid. And the police did a, a scam, but they it took them three days to find me. And when they did find me, I was living with a Chinese family, yes. Did you? Did your parents have any other children with them at the time? Uh, no, my brother was back home in New York. Uh, I guess he was uh, with with somebody who was taking care of him here because he was only nine years old. They should have left you in New York, too. Yeah, you remember I, I, the Chinese family? Were they nice? No, I only vaguely re- remember uh, remember being found. I remember uh, not feeling like I did something wrong, like I, you know. But they did something wrong. They, you know, you yeah. don't you don't lose track of a three year old and let him walk away. And then you know, but that's a whole other story. But my point is, you can imagine that if that's my start in life, that I must have had some really usual, unusual experiences. And I yeah, have. I uh, so I can't think of anything that surprised me that I, I never thought I would do this. I'm going to give it some thought, though, and I'll get back to you on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so has that been a rewarding? Uh, do you think you'll continue it? You know, obviously lockdown in a lot of places is is uh, done with now. I don't know where if that's the case in, in where 
where you are. But uh, do you think it's something you'll keep continue to yeah, do? I'm going to continue it for the next little while, and we'll see. Um, I'm taking a break for the month of uh, July, and we'll see how I feel. But yeah, I've met a lot of interesting people, and I love talking about the creative process and what inspires people to write. So all of that stuff, you know, it's definitely something I find worthwhile. Is learning uh, new things one of your um, driving uh, motivations in life? Is, is that, are you a voracious learner? Is that what? I do like to learn new things. I try to always be learning something new, um, but that's just good for your brain. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but you went to school for philosophy now. That's a long way, in my mind, from creative arts or because the other two books you've written seem to be uh, entrepreneurial books. Not, maybe not so much marketing books, but for yeah. the entrepreneur. That's a long way from philosophy. What, what led you? So I always knew that I was a writer. I started writing when I was a kid and I wrote theatrically. So like I always knew I wanted to write scripts and movies and plays and um, philosophy is kind of where theater was born with the Greeks. Right. And, uh, you know, so I studied Greek mythology and um, I also studied a number of literature classes like Shakespeare, Shakespeare's contemporaries, dramatic lit, all of that stuff. And yeah, I just found that like, you know, all of the best storytelling came from trying to like explain why we're here. What's our purpose? You know, yeah. like, that's where all story kind of comes from trying to give life meaning. So, so that so is something I, I am very curious about. And I don't, I guess I don't even realize that I'm interested in philosophy, but on a personal level, purpose not necessarily on a societal level or as the human race what our purpose is and what we're doing here although that's interesting to me too but i think for individuals finding their own purpose or having a connection to a purpose and realizing you know what is my life really all about or what do i want to make it all about is a fascinating subject to me. It's, it's something i question myself on every single uh, day and i i think i question just about every guest I have on uh, about connecting with their purpose and how how, how it came to them and because uh, some people never find it some people go through life punching a clock working in a cubicle nine to five whatever and unhappy not that's not the job they want but they're doing it for the money to make a living and whatever and they get through life never ever connecting with their purpose or what what life is all about for them, what their legacy is. Um, is that something that, that drives you as well? Um, not necessarily a legacy, but definitely just building a body of work. Um, that's always because, of course, everything as an artist, everything we try to do in life, like we want it to be great. Every piece of work we do, we're not doing to be mediocre or doing to be just okay, you know, but it also takes a certain amount of time and repetition 
of, you know, rinse and repeat. Okay, let's write a different play. Let's mount it again. Let's get into casting. Let's work with the actors. Let's go on a, you know, go for rehearsal period. Now we open, now we do the play. Okay, now that one's done. Okay, there's another script that comes along. Let's do this one, you know, and first of all, writing a good script is a muscle. Your your first script, hate to tell you this, it's not going to be great. Your first five scripts probably aren't going to be great. But the sixth one, that might be something. The seventh one, you might even sell. The eighth one, you might even sell for enough money to, like, go on vacation. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but th- but that's the thing. Nobody hears about, you know, your eighth script. If your eighth script is the first script you sell, it's your first script. Right. That's true. You know yeah. what I mean? So yeah, yeah. Um, because it's your first script that got made, your first script that got sold. The it's overnight success that was that 20 years funded. in making. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, so for me, truly, it's just about the joy in the process. Like I love making stuff. I love theater. I love film. I love getting on set. I love shooting all day long. I love being on stage all night long. Like to me, just getting to do it is the reward. So the fact that that's my life, it's really kind of cool. <laughs> you know, yeah. like it's really cool. Am I famous? Not yet. Am I rich? Not as much as I'd like to be, but Nobody I will. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so but, when when but did you first? Life, you know, it, I, but that's life too. Like how how famous is enough famous? You know, how much money is enough money? Like once you get famous, you want more famous. Once you get a certain amount of money, you want more money. Yeah, I had that conversation with a 21 year old author last night about fame and and fortune and that part of it. Uh, and if you have a couple of minutes, I know we're at the hour. Do you have a couple minutes to hang around? I do. Yeah. Okay. Um, when did when did you first realize that this is what you want to do with your life? Did did is there a moment like? In your- oh, I was a kid. I was totally a kid. I was probably watching like Saved by the Bell and like wanted Zach to be my boyfriend. So I had to write an episode <laughs> where Zach was my boyfriend and I was like some new girl at Bayside. So, oh yeah, Mark Paul Gosler, thank you very much. You're the reason. Right. Blue and Zach attack. Well, uh, thank you for that. Because, you know, a lot of people don't find out what they want to do until later in life. And I think that's okay as long as at some point before you die and while you still have time to pursue your dreams that you kind of – it dawns on you at some point what my life purpose is and what I'm supposed to be doing with this life. Whether whether it's – whether you believe in God or whatever you believe that that is giving you that purpose, it's good to kind of – at least have some meaning to your life. And I think if you don't connect with it. And also I think like, you know, people have put too much weight on this whole purpose thing too, because it's like, you don't need to be a guru. Nobody, you know, because now like the whole trend for the past 10 years is find your purpose, find your life's meaning, find your this, find your that. You know what? It doesn't have to be big. Your life's meaning can be like, I like bike riding. I want to go on a bike trip on every continent before I turn 60. It could be, I want to be, I want to be a dominatrix too, right? Yeah. You know, (laughs) I want to learn how to tango and be in a tango competition 
sometime in the next five years. Like that's the other thing too. You, the, this whole like live your passion. It doesn't mean like quit your job tomorrow. No, right. You know, and like jump off the balcony because you believe you can fly. Like, because I feel like a lot of these like personal development classes or courses or gurus, it's like, you don't need to have a job, just sit and think about money. And like, all of a sudden you open your eyes and there's like a pile on the table, like the Allstate guy just showed up with a big bundle. And, you know, and that's not the answer either. It's, you know, figure out what makes you happy, what brings you joy. That can be having your family over for a meal. That can be, you know, socializing and having a girl's night once a week. Like, right. there's no, it doesn't have to be, you know, curing cancer or, you know. No, no, I agree. Crazy bad. Like, you know, your purpose is your purpose. It's not what I and I am no place judging your purpose and whatever you decide is uh, what you want to do with your life. Uh, I think more power to you. I get that. Exactly. Um, last night, the discussion and, and interesting, you brought up Tango, Tommy Chong, who was on this program, you know, Tommy Chong, Cheech and Chong. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. He'd taken up Tango at 83. So when he told wow. me it's, it's, it's like an extremely hard dance to learn. So, but it's just uh, mm-hmm. kind of, but that kind of, you know, when you're talking about, you know, you don't have to quit your job. He's not quitting his job. <laughs> I mean, he's got other uh, entrepreneurial things to do, but he's at 83 years old. He decided he wants to learn the Tango and God bless him. He's doing it and, and going out. And, and, well, that's the thing. Why not? And so many times there's like, I think two things that stop us. Number one, we're afraid that we're not going to be good. Well, when you were a child, when you learned anything, you weren't good. You just accepted that you weren't good and you knew you weren't going to be good until you learned. And that's just an understanding that a five-year-old has that a 55-year-old doesn't. It's like, dude, what five-year-old, they don't expect to know how to do anything. That's just it. Like, it's just a given. I am not, I'm going to be, I'm going to be terrible at this for at least two weeks. And then I'm going to be great. That's a, that's a really good point. Was at some point we need to reconnect with that child who's who's brave enough yeah, to say, I, "I'm willing to suck anyway. at this until I don't suck anymore." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> First of all, number one, you know, you're gonna suck until you don't suck. <laughs> and number two, if you keep sucking after two years, you can be like, "I tried it and I sucked." You'll and get bored I with sucked, it. Yeah. I didn't like it, so I'm gonna yeah. go suck at something else for a while. Exactly. Good stuff. Yeah. Um, now, on the idea of fame and fortune. Uh-huh. Fame used to mean something, um, and I don't think it does anymore. I And I think, I hate to sound like an old person saying the younger generation, you know, but I think the younger generation, people coming up today, young people today, value fame over what fame is supposed to be. In other words, fame uh, is and celebrity. Well, yeah. Celebrity is about really adding enough value, in my opinion, adding enough value to people's lives that they want to lift you up and celebrate you. That's what fame really is. But uh, I think that part of it escapes the younger generation today. And it's fame for no matter what I get. It doesn't matter what I get famous for. I just fame is the goal in and of itself. And I think it's it's really hurting our culture in a big way. Well, yeah, it is. And the problem is, you know, The problem is with social media because social media made a bunch of 
regular people famous for no reason, meaning no reason without achieving an exceptional merit of some sort, that there's a reason to give them some sort of recognition. Right. You know, now you can, you know, there are some people who have some cool acrobatic skills, but most of them it's people who have fails, you know, like are failing at doing something or slip and fall or, you know, kind of prank videos. Um, so yeah, I don't think any of these, any of these people who become Insta famous are contributing anything worthwhile to society. Right. And that, that's where we have the problem. The problem isn't about people being Insta-famous. It's about the reason why they're becoming Insta-famous. And before social media, you had to, you know, there was, an only, there was only a certain amount of space on a newsstand. There was only a certain amount of, you know, news channels on TV or tabloid shows that were going to give people recognition. Now there's an unlimited scroll on more websites than I even know how to count. And there's this constant fight to, to stay relevant. Like celebrities used to want their privacy. They wouldn't invite you into their homes and show you how, the, how they cook with their children and what kind of spread they put out for Thanksgiving. These things used to be private things that people kept private. And now it's unfortunate that everybody, even people who are super famous, because they've achieved certain things, still feel like they need to stay relevant and post all of these things at the sacrifice of, you know, their privacy and their time. I agree. I agree. Uh, and now to kind of try and, and clumsily uh, segue this into how we can wrap this up and bring it back to talking about your book. I think part of the cultural thing that uh, drove this place where we're at today um, and I think it started in before 2000, like in, in, in uh, that era, 1990s, around 2000, where a lot of young celebrity girls uh, were leaking their own sex tapes to get famous and, and drove this idea about promiscuity. Why, why do I have a difficult time with that word, promiscuity? Uh, drove this idea about it. Uh, that was your key to getting famous, you know, leaking their own sex tape and then acting outraged about it, like, who leaked this? And we know it was, it was your... But I think that drove a lot of this idea about um, making girls, young girls, uh, more experimental, more curious about, you know, what if I push the limits and just do what a man would do? Well, yeah, exactly. And even just look at fashion, the fashions of the early 2000s, you know, you had the really, really low rise um, jeans where you could see the thong outside. And now teenage girls are all of a sudden wearing thongs. And with the rise of the thong came the rise of the Brazilian bikini wax. Why are 16 year old girls getting their ass cracks waxed? Do they really need that? But I guess they do because now they're wearing thongs. You know, so and it starts this whole cycle and it's like, OK, so now your nether region is completely bare, you know, and now it's, you're going to want to do things with it, right. <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah, there definitely is this 
influence, the celebrity influence, like Paris Hilton was one of the first ones where she had her sex tape released. And she also, um, it was released like the week her TV show, The Simple Life came out. <laughs> oh my goodness, my battery is about to die. I need to run and get my charger. Give me one second. I'm okay. so sorry. That's fine. I'll just cover here. She's talking about Paris Hilton's uh, television show. Uh, curiously coinciding, uh, the premiere of the television show, uh, curiously coinciding with the release of a sex tape uh, as if somebody was doing it maliciously to hurt her. But obviously, uh, it was done for attention and to get ratings. <laughs> yeah, I don't, no, I don't think it was done to hurt her. I think it was strategically yeah. done. To yes. get her a lot of free press. And I think Nicole Richie, either that week or the following week, was arrested for possession of heroin. I don't think that was a mistake either. No. Um, so years ago, I saw the movie like Madonna, Truth or Dare. Um, you know, maybe like 15 years ago or something, it was on TV. And there's a scene where she's in Toronto, which is where I'm from. And she's doing a concert and it's her like a virgin tour and she's really raunchy on stage. And she basically gets calls from like the city council office and from the police basically saying that if she is as explicit that day at her second concert, that they were going to arrest her and they were going to shut down the concert. Wow. And you see her backstage at the concert and she's talking with her publicist and she's talking with her manager. She's talking basically with her business team and she's debating whether or not she should do it like the way she had planned it because she's like, what's the worst that can happen if I'm arrested? Like how long is the most amount of time they can keep me? What's the most amount of bail? You know, because she's like to be on the front cover of the trade-off. Yeah. The trade -off in the makes entire world for one night in prison and a $20,000 fine is totally worth it. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, so you see her kind of doing this cost benefit analysis in the dressing room before she's about to go on stage to be like, is it worth it if I got arrested? And she decided it definitely was. And she went out and did a more explicit show than the night before, but she didn't end up getting arrested. They didn't right. do any all for nothing. Right. <laughs> all so for it, nothing. In, influence. Uh, and so do you, and the book is called the year of the what, uh, and uh, is the, do you consider social influence, social ramifications when you're writing a book and, or, and putting it out? Uh, and is this uh, helpful for teenage girls or is this a pure adult read the book? Um, so it, it's, it's an adult read. It's definitely racy, but I would say it's good. Anyone over 18 is good for because I think girls on the younger side, it's a little bit of a cautionary tale you know, of kind of what to expect and just to have a little bit of a more realistic expectation when you like embark out into the dating world and, you know, just how women have different or view different scenarios differently than men do. Um, so I think there's that <laughs> for sure. 
most artists I would talk to, I've talked to, uh, don't even uh, consider, because first of all, you don't know if something's going to be successful or not, and you don't know who, who's going to end up uh, consuming the art that you're creating. But the idea of social impact and my influence doesn't really, unless you're one of these uh, musicians who think they're going to change the world with a song, which is sometimes a little well, self-delusional. Yeah, no, I did want to deconstruct the word slut and I did want to kind of offer a different point of view of a girl who, if you told the girl before she embarks on the year of the slut, what her year would look like, she would be like, I would never do that. You know, oh, I'm so slut. but at the end of the year, she realizes that her closed minded point of view really wasn't going to be helpful for the rest of her life and not just her view about sex, but just her closed minded point of view in general. So it's this whole kind of coming of age turnaround in terms of social impact. You know, you definitely want people to enjoy your work. Like that's for sure. This book is meant to be a lot of fun. Like I said, there's a little bit of cautionary tales. Um, there are two kind of, um, serious let's say serious scenes um that deal um one deals with date rape and one deals with a uh, drug overdose um and i remember my first editor really wanted me to address those situations and go into how to report them properly and the repercussions and i that really kind of put me off because it's like, well, I'm not writing a book about how to report a rape. Right. Like the book that I'm writing about is a girl who experienced date rape with somebody who was a past sexual partner of hers to, you know, to muddy the, the story a little more and she doesn't report it and she doesn't take any legal action and this is based on a story that is about somebody that I know, not necessarily the character in the book, but it wasn't reported. There are date rapes that happen all the time that aren't all reported. The time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And a lot of times it is a very kind of gray, murky, unclear area. And that's why it's called date rape not point a gut at your head in your alley rape because point a gut at your head in your in an alley rape you know 100% inequivocally that that was rape right um so, so is that situation and there's a drug overdose situation where the editor was also like well you know there's no talk of rehab there's no talk of this there's no talk of that and i'm just like yeah, that's not the story that I'm telling, you know, like the girl happens to be at a party where somebody happens to overdose on some drugs and then she leaves and goes her separate way. <laughs> like we don't need to get into it. Right. Right. And I think, uh, and good for you because I think having too many cooks in the kitchen can, you know, you know the tone of the book that you're writing, and I think if yeah. you would have tried to uh, take that advice and and, and uh, become a social warrior on on, on this cause, well, I think it, it might it might have ruined the tone of your book over overall, and then nobody yeah, wanted to read it. I just knew the story that I was telling, and I knew the story I wasn't telling. You know, and I I do 
when I talk with other writers, I help um, with script development quite often. And when I talk with other writers, because they get to a point in their script where they want to start sending it out and they start sending it to multiple people and they get literally contradicting feedback from every person they give it to. And I just kind of pull them aside and I'm like, look, you need to decide what your script is about. You need to decide who your story is about. These are all of your decisions. Everything else, you know, you just have to take with a grain of salt unless it helps you achieve your purpose. If the notes are not helping you achieve your purpose, you need to let them go. They can still be good notes. They can still be really interesting. They can still be an interesting story, but that's not the story you're telling. Right. Yeah, great stuff. Uh, so the uh, the book is called Year of the What. It's available at yearofthewhat.com. Wow, just imagine that. Uh, yearofthewhat.com. I think we did make a kind of a, a breakthrough uh, here. And uh, as your psychologist, I, I, you can pay the bill on the way out. Uh, about <laughs> uh, about um, why you did the um, the the vlog podcast vlogcast if you want to call it that about uh things that you would never thought you would you know never thought you would do because your character in your book has has faced that and uh, i think that's where it came out of right yeah i think my whole life has been a series of doing things i never thought i would like i never thought i would do a one-woman show um just every time somebody suggested like oh this might be a good vehicle this might be a good opportunity why don't you try doing this why don't you try doing that that's why the I wrote the show. Then that's why I wrote the book. Um, so, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you never know. You never know what you're made of until right. you throw your hat in the ring and see. Very cool stuff. So the other book being written now, or you just started? Or is it getting, yeah, getting so I've started writing Year of the Bitch. That's going to be number two. And um, I'm excited about it. I'm hoping that'll be done in about a year. It'll be ready to come out in about a year. Well, do me a favor. When it does come out and and you're ready to uh, start promoting it, please do come back here. I'd love to have you Oh, I would love to, Matt. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed this conversation a lot. And uh, there were things like if we had time, I would love to get into uh, the the whole idea on date rape and all that stuff. But we don't have time for that. But um, uh, I've had... I have really enjoyed this conversation. It gave me a lot to think Same. about here. And so uh, I, I wish you great success. And I hope you have a lot of success with this book and the, the follow-up book as well. So uh, once again, it's theyearofwhat.com. Uh, and my guest today has been Jennifer Lieberman. And she's an author, actress, producer, marketing person, everything, <laughs> all, entrepreneur, entrepreneur uh, very, very interesting person. I'm glad to have met you, Jennifer, and please do Thanks. come back. And um, yes. till, Thank you, till, Matt. I appreciate till, it. Till we meet again. Bye for now. Jennifer Lieberman, folks, uh, the year of the what.com. I hope you enjoyed this program. Love to hear your comments and feedback on it. Info at minddogtv.com. Info at minddogtv.com. Do have a show tonight. Who is with me tonight, Johnny? Uh, tonight, uh, we have another edition of Meet the Author. Anna J. Weiner uh, will be with me. Uh, fantasy writer. Uh, should be an interesting program. So join me then, 8 p.m. Eastern. Until then, I'm Matt Napple for the Mind Dog TV podcast. Thanks for joining me. Have a great rest of your day. And bye for now.
me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now.